0: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible sociologist, sexologist, author, and intimacy coach, Dr. Jennifer Gonzalez. Hi, Jen, and welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Zach, thank you for having me.
1: Today, we are going to talk about From Madness to Mindfulness. But before we get into that, Let's learn a little bit more about Jen. For those that don't know, Jennifer, Dr. Jen Gonzalez, is a sociologist who works as a sexuality and mindfulness speaker and a relationship, intimacy, and sex coach. Her teachings can be found across a variety of mediums, including her In the Den video series on YouTube, her educational sex talk with Clint and the Doc podcast, two TEDx talks, Being a recurring intimacy expert on the San Diego morning news and also giving expert advice in the documentary on masturbation called Sticky, a self-love story. (laughs) An active philanthropist with Women Give San Diego, the founder of World Sexual Health Day San Diego. Jen is the author of From Madness to Mindfulness: Reinventing Sex for Women, the topic for today's show. Hi Jen, how are you doing today?
0: Hey, I'm doing good. I'm excited you wanted to talk about this topic in my book cuz I could talk forever about it. So thank you.
1: <laughs> oh good cuz yeah, there's so many questions I have for you and so many things <laughs> we can talk about and I kind of want to just hop right to it and talk about this madness that you speak of. Yeah. Cuz I'm sure people are curious and I know you're not talking Talking about like a psychotic or schizophrenic (laughs) episode of any sort. You're actually referring to kind of the cultural madness surrounding the conflicting messages we tell girls and women about their sexuality and bodies. So tell us first about what do you mean by madness?
0: Yeah. And yeah, it's exactly cultural madness Um, is exactly what I call it as a sociologist because I've been in this field and doing um, work around sexual health and and intimacy coaching and public speaking for so many years and talk to women around the country of all different ages and of different racial ethnic backgrounds and religious upbringings. And there's common threads that so many of us have grown up with these messages of what it means to be a quote unquote good girl or what it means to be feminine. And so often those messages are, you know, to follow the rules, to not rock the boat, to not speak up for yourself, to to not masturbate, to, to learn shame uh, around sex and sexual expression. There's so many negative messages around our bodies that there's always something wrong with our body and it doesn't look right we learned that our value is based in how others evaluate our appearance and how we show up to others. And then as we get older and become teenagers and older, then our value can be in, you know, whether we're sexy to other people or not, and not in our inherent worth, our inherent sense of self. So our, our our sexuality, gets defined outside of us or us as sexual beings and how others view us. And we're just taught at a really deep level that we are not good enough. Our bodies aren't good enough. They're not pretty enough. It's not, it's not what we think is, is worthy. And so at so many levels, we learn to shame about our bodies, shame about our sexuality. Uh, we're not taught that it's okay to explore our bodies and know our bodies on our own terms. Um, and then to build a talk about those topics. I mean, it's certainly Me Too brought this to a head that, you know, pretty much all women, they hit a certain age, they have experienced some version of sexual harassment or sexual coercion. Uh, and that's just built into the fabric of so many uh, sexual interactions. And but so all of this is is what so many um, young girls and young women are raised with, you know. And so much negativity around our bodies and sex. And then we're expected as adults to flip a switch and 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 find our lifelong partner that we are passionate for, you know, and desirous of, and have this amazing sex life for the rest of our lives. And that's just not the reality for most people because of all of this stuff that got programmed into us. And that's why I call it madness because it's like and then so many women think that they are broken or that something's wrong with them in some way or they're dysfunctional instead of realizing you are you are a product of your society and what we have been taught around all these topics and how we're taught to act and view ourselves you know around our self-worth and our self-beliefs you know it's like you're banging your head against the wall and i was like no that is like you are you are a product of society but once you realize that and that this is this madness you've been fed and that it insults your soul it doesn't allow you to be a fully expressed and connected and intimate human being with others and gets in the way of what you most want and realize that's not you, that's your society. So that's the madness I speak of.
1: Yes, there's all these conflicting and challenging and cultural messages that create so much shame and and judgment and and internalized oppression that women feel in their own bodies. So you're describing, you know, an entire system, an entire culture and an entire society that goes against women's authentic way of being. So what are we going to do about it? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, I think (laughs) an important answer, at least um, at an individual level and relationship level, is mindfulness. And so that's the madness to mindfulness that I speak of in my book and that I teach. And mindfulness, you know, at its basic definition, present moment awareness without judgment, you know, what that really means is studying what's happening inside of you and outside of you. Uh, So often, you know, we're just, our, our brains strive for efficiency. And we've been programmed our whole lives and we, we want to avoid what is painful or what is uncomfortable. But so many of these messages that we've been taught, we need to really sit with them at their visceral level of how they, they live in us and then to be able to do something different about it. So like, for example, one of the things I've worked with a lot um, with couples over the years is couples in long-term relationships who have mismatched desire levels. Mm-hmm. And so, say I'm working with a a woman, and her partner says and says like very nicely, no judgment, no tone of voice, like, "Hey, I noticed it's you know been a while since we've had sex. Can we talk about that?" And to that woman who just heard that, and even though her partner really did nothing wrong, just like kindly broached a topic, she very much like if she feels shame about that, if she feels guilt, um, if she feels uncomfortable talking about sex topics, if she doesn't know how to do it, it is all creates a very reactive pattern. And then so she might lash out at her partner and be like, are you kidding? Like, I've been so busy. Of course we haven't had sex. Like, how rude of you to bring that up? Or she feels guilty and she just, you know, or shameful and retreats emotionally and doesn't even want to engage. Or maybe she'll engage some and then, you know, is distracted by her phone or wants to scroll Instagram, you know, or or, you know, goes, you know, pours a glass of wine to be able to kind of numb herself some. So mindfulness is about recognizing all of those reactive patterns that we want to do because we feel uncomfortable inside and learning how to sit with them and be like, oh, yeah, I really want to yell at you right now. (laughs) Or I really want to run to the other room because I feel my heart is pounding and I feel this dropping feeling in my stomach and I feel nervous and, I, and I'm just like, this is so, so uncomfortable inside of me and I don't know what to say. You know, and that's this kind of starting point with breaking our patterns with our partners using mindfulness to be like, oh, this is what's happening in the moment. I've got this whole story about it and I have this pattern of what I want to do. But let me just stay with what's actually happening right now. And that type of skill building, I mean, is is applicable to pretty much everything in our lives. Whether you're in traffic and you're like pissed that somebody cuts you off and you want to like yell at that person to you know road rage, to snapping at your kids uh, because they won't put their shoes on, to feeling you know belittled by a boss and you know not knowing how to speak up, all of those things. We all have patterns of things that we've learned growing up, emotional, mental patterns. And mindfulness can help us step back and not get swept away in the moment with whatever our pattern is, but to be able to stay present with it and sit with the awkwardness and discomfort of it, study it, and then to be able to make new choices in ways that feel empowering and that you have a voice. Yeah, just make you more self-expressed and and help you build an intimacy with your partners.
1: Mm. So I wouldn't mind just challenging you a little bit in this idea, because I totally 100% agree with, I believe in the power of mindfulness. You know, they say the solution to the pain, like is being able to sit with your pain and being able to go into the darkness and signing some lightful attention on the challenging emotions that you're going through and increasing the capacity to be with our emotions can be so powerful. Now, when you talk about the madness, we're talking about this like cultural societal and messages that we see and also in the media. And how do we not victim blame, you know, ourselves be like, oh, well, you're not being mindful enough about your emotions, right? Actually, it's you who need, who continues to need to be fixed. And it's your responsibility to fix yourself rather than putting the responsibility on the larger society.
0: Great question. And so many directions we could go. You know, the basic definition of mindfulness is present moment awareness without judgment. And I like to take it a step further and say that mindfulness and compassion need to go hand in hand. So not just not judgment of ourselves or not judgment of others, but actually feeling compassion and acting on compassion. And whether that's, you know, towards ourselves or towards others, because mindfulness is not about self-righteousness. It's about owning our shit and owning our story and owning what's showing up in our reality right now and not blaming that on anyone else or pointing any other fingers, which is so Interesting for me, you know, my PhD is in sociology, so I was indoctrinated into looking at these bigger structural constraints and oppressions and bullshit, hmm. <laughs> you know, in society, whether it's race, socioeconomic status, gender, sexual orientation, ability, you know, geography, all these religion, all these different factors, which is part of what I love where I am at my work now, because I think I think we better make larger structural changes when we're able to really own it in ourselves and move through it and not be hooked by it. So I think the compassion piece, because compassion is, um, it's vulnerable to be compassionate. It's vulnerable to look at other people who are doing things that we think are like awful to our racial group or our gender group or, or, or people who are disadvantaged in society and really step back and still view them as humans who are worthy of compassion, because otherwise we want to shut our hearts down to us. We want to shut that these people are not deserving of kindness or compassion. I don't think that's what breeds greater compassion in the world. That's basically what we're asking for. When we want these changes, these structural systemic changes, we need them at policy levels in our government and at legal systems. But ideally, we want people to make these changes because they care. Mm Because they get their heads out of their own asses and be like, oh, oh, my view on the world. I have a lot of advantages that other people really don't have. And like, how can I have compassion and like empathy, not like sympathy or pity, but empathy to actually stand in their shoes and understand that other people are raised not with the same advantages that I had. And what can I do? How can I help, you know, give them access to resources or help, you know, empower them or help level the playing field. and that is. I think for all of us starts with, you know, owning our own shit and, and, and then able to keep our hearts open towards ourselves, self-compassion for ourselves and self-compassion for others. You know, I joke with my friends sometimes I was like, oh, I'm very comfortable with anger as an emotion. I prefer to use it as a tool that I choose it. You know, like I have a whole toolbox of emotions and responses and reactions and strategies of how I how I manage things in my interpersonal life and how I manage things professionally and how I manage things as an activist and as a sociologist and as a feminist. But I want to be conscious in the tools that I'm choosing and that I'm not just being reactive. And so anger is an incredibly valuable tool to pick up and use and then to put back in the toolbox when you're done. But when we day in anger we're shutting ourselves down it's not good for us it's not good for us mentally emotionally physiologically but it also means we we're not keeping our heart open to connect with others which is really really freaking hard to do cuz like i said it's a very vulnerable thing to do so does that address your question
1: yes in, in so many ways um i really appreciate your distinction that mindfulness and compassion walk hand in hand and compassion mm-hmm. is opening our hearts to ourselves and willing to approach that vulnerability. And when we do make structural change in society, we want to make sure that's coming from the right place. It's coming from compassion. It's coming from mindfulness. And we're not being controlled by our anger, but recognizing that anger can be a response to injustice and the oppression that we see. I love this, this path, right, from the madness in our culture that oppresses women and internalizes shame to mindfulness and using mindfulness to break out of that reactivity. So if women are using mindfulness to break out of their own conditioning, you know, how can how can men like support the cause, so to speak? You know, once, you know, we recognize the patriarchal culture that and the misogyny that runs rampant in in so many areas, you know, what can men do to support their partners breaking out of out of internalized shame and also supporting just women in general in their sexual empowerment?
0: Excellent question. Thank Hmm. you for asking that. And it's interesting to think, I don't get asked that very much. (laughs) That's super interesting to think because I was like, oh, what is my answer? This is exciting. (laughs) The first place I go to is, I mean, and we've heard this a lot around the Me Too movement and all, is listening and asking questions. And then, you know, I think there's a a misunderstanding that mindfulness or meditation, it means like feeling good, feeling calm, getting rid of stress, but like really practicing mindfulness from battlefield to battlefield in life. It means feeling really, really uncomfortable (laughs) and choosing to stay present with it and then building your emotional resilience that way. And for many Men, I think, around difficult emotional topics, if they see their partner, their female partner, struggling around something sexually or struggling around something emotionally, they feel so uncomfortable inside viewing that. And they feel their own discomfort, and then they're not responsible with their own discomfort. And they then want to, quote unquote, fix their partner. You know, if somebody's crying in front of you, people do this to kids all the time. And I think it's not so helpful that they say, no, 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 stop crying. Stop. crying. It's okay, You're fine. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, I got you. I'm here with you. But it's another to say, stop crying instead of being like staying with them, witnessing the crying, dropping into that place with someone else and creating safety for them and witnessing it without having to change it or without having it to be different because you're uncomfortable in it. I, I mean, exactly what I'm, I'm talking about around mindfulness for women and sitting with the discomfort of shame in them, for men sitting with the, the discomfort in them and whether they feel it in their throats or their chest or their solar plexus or down in their gut and their stomach or their heart's pounding or their muscles are tensing up, You know, viscerally, where are you feeling this discomfort that you really don't want to sit with in that moment? How do you embrace it? How do you choose to move towards it? How do you, I mean, that to me is what true strength is. That's what true courage is. Not shutting that stuff down and blocking it out, but choosing to move towards that discomfort and having the courage to do that and staying with it. And then not letting your discomfort get in the way of your partner's experience, but actually meeting them in that place. It's beautiful when someone can witness you in that way.
1: I love what you just said. So, people, so many people think that mindfulness is just being calm and finding peace (laughs) in the moment, but it's really being present with discomfort and choosing to move toward it and embrace it. So, as we're moving toward embracing the shame we might have in ourselves and moving towards seeing our partners also struggle with this shame, we're slowly moving away from shame and more towards a feeling of worthiness. And you right in your book that the core of overall sexual health is our feeling of worthiness and that shame is actually what gets in the way. So before we tackle shame, let's talk about this idea of self-worth, because why would you say self-worth is so necessary for a healthy and fulfilling relationship and sex life?
0: You know, it's funny. I talk about self-worth in the introduction of my book quite a bit and sort of like why I wrote this book. And it's funny because I think had I not done all the research and work in sociology and my dissertation work and all of that, and if we didn't have all of this cultural madness around sexuality for women, I don't think worthiness would be, like, it would be just taken for granted. Like, well, why do I have to, be worthy, you know. In my sex life, it's kind of like I, I've helped run a group in San Diego for a while called Sex Positive San Diego, and people are like, "Well, what's sex positive?" And I was like, "Well, sex positive is the opposite of sex negative, <laughs> <laughs> you know." And it's like we have sex positive organizations because we have such a sex negative society, and that's kind of how I feel about self worth and women's sexual expression because, in so many ways, women are taught that that there's something wrong with their bodies or there's something wrong with their sexual expression, or even their their feelings of desire or wanting to talk about sexual things or wanting to pursue an orgasm or their own sexual pleasure, whether it's overt messages or more covert messages, we just do get them in so many ways that it's just wrong, that our body and our sexuality is wrong in some ways or our sexual feelings. And that, therefore, Seems to get connected at a deep level that then we're wrong in some way. And we're just like sort of wrong in who we are. We're not lovable as we are. Those, I think, would be foundational aspects of whether we just think we're worthy or not as humans or worthy of love and that we're okay exactly as we are. So I think that's how I end up kind of getting to the the self-worth path. There's a lot of versions of women's sexual empowerment and self-esteem and self-confidence and self-worth that kind of is like be badass, don't don't give a shit about what other people think of you. And like that's not what I'm saying here. This is a much more nuanced thing because that type of don't don't care what other people think about you. Well, there's some value in messaging like that. You know, those that type of messaging, I think, is more like uh, put up your armor and not care what other people think. And mindfulness and compassion is all about taking your armor down and not needing to put it up. And so with this messaging of like don't care what other people think of you. I think it'd be more like, well, reflect on your response. (laughs) If you're hurt by what somebody says, sort of like reflect on that and sit with that, you know, move towards that discomfort, find your own truth within that. And then in that way, instead of putting up armor to protect yourself, you're actually building emotional resilience based in mindfulness and self-reflection and self-compassion and self-care, these really foundational heart-opening ways of building emotional resilience, not by putting the armor on. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. I'm imagining a listener listening to you talk about you know, the shame people have in their bodies and the challenges around dealing with that discomfort. And they don't, they don't resonate with you. like, What are you talking about? Like, you know, I have a great sex life. You know, my partner, my partner loves and, and supports me. I don't have any of these negative, internalized messages in myself. And, you know, we all have these messages, whether they're conscious or unconscious you know what are some ways that you see that sexual shame or the negative messages we have around sex sort of show up in people's life that they may not even realize is just past conditioning showing up
0: uh, well so first of all if somebody is listening and thinking that they may be they you know either they've really you know grew up in a very sex positive household maybe or combined and they didn't get negative religious beliefs you know, indoctrinated into them. And they had good early sexual experiences and their, you know, specific, you know, genetic personality makeup. Like, it's possible. They're like, (laughs) oh no, yeah, I see this shit going on around me, but like, I'm like really good. And so, and that may be the case. I wouldn't say that that's not the norm. So it's
1: possible to grow up without the badness.
0: It's not, it's not the norm. Um, (laughs) But there are folks, or there's folks that like had some and then have like, but it was more like they didn't have deeper traumas, and and they've you know worked on their stuff, and they're like, no, I'm I'm pretty good, like or I, they recognize it if it starts to pop up, and they know they can make a different choice. So it's not like completely gone, but they're they're conscious of it, and they're aware of it, and they're mindful around it, and then they they choose to go down a different path. But I hear this sometimes from. Young women, like in their 20s specifically, they're like, I'm into kink and, you know, I like to dominate in the bedroom and, you know, and I have all of these hookup with guys and like I, you know, I own my sexual pleasure and I'm comfortable pursuing it. And so the physical manifestation of their sexual expression seems what we would call empowered or liberated, but they do not know and will not be emotionally vulnerable. And so I've seen that that there is a version of what it means to be a sexually empowered woman that is very much again having that armor up over their heart that they will not they won't be emotionally vulnerable, they don't want to go there, they're awkward with that, they're uncomfortable with it, they think it's unnecessary. So there's this detachment of sexual expression and sexual pleasure from emotional intimacy, whether they know it or not. Like I think they're they're consciously putting that block up because they don't want to go to the emotional intimacy. So I think true I don't know truly not you know living from shame or guilt or embarrassment or the cultural madness of our society is being able to be emotionally raw and vulnerable in all our human beauty and messiness that we all have with another human being in the sexual realm around your sexual expression and being able to ask for what you want and being able to negotiate and being able to surrender. So I think that's a piece that I see. I also, sometimes when I hear folks that would be like, no, we don't have a problem in our sex life. I'm shocked by the amount of time that those people pretty much always smoke pot or drink. around sex and I was like okay yeah and what would it be if you didn't have those things with it and pot and alcohol absolutely could be enhancements in sexual situations however they also can numb us emotionally and, and, and numb anxieties or numb social awkwardness and our insecurities and our fears. And that's part of why they're lovely mm-hmm. <laughs> at times. But in terms of really present, raw depth of connection with another human being, you know, I think the most beautiful thing we can experience with another human being is to have none of our armor up and be fully raw in who we are, like I said, in all our beauty and messiness as a human and have another human being do that in front of us and that we're creating that safe space for each other. I it's like the scariest thing you can do but it's like the most beautiful thing we can do and you know it's sexual connection and the sexual energy can be pathways to experiencing that but i think so often the pot and alcohol i think it can facilitate maybe the the physical pleasure aspects and sometimes I mean I you know I guess there could be experiences with psychedelics and such or MDMA that could help with heart opening and dropping into that but ideally you know from my perspective of mindfulness mindfulness is is you know being totally sober and clear-headed and and staying present with anything that's showing up and not you know using anything to numb that so Otherwise, back to your, your bigger question. Uh, well, because, yeah, you asked that question. And I was thinking about how people are like, no, I don't have any problems. And but, you know, when you kind of pull back the layers, you can see that they may be sort of numbing themselves from insecurities or from shame. So how does shame show up? Shame can show up by not being able to talk about sexual topics, being afraid to try new things, you know, being too embarrassed to do so, um, afraid of, of messing up could show up as some performance issue concerns with men, um erectile concerns for women it could uh, show up around orgasm. Shame certainly shows up around body image, you know wanting to keep a shirt on during sex or wanting um to have, you know always being in the dark and that the lights are out. This could be shame or this could be embarrassment or fear of vulnerability of not wanting to make eye contact, prolonged eye contact during a sexual encounter it might that might not be shame, but that could be just that fear of vulnerability. Eye contact is a very personal and very raw, yeah, and it feels very vulnerable, so it it could be really amazing with the right person. so that's what comes to mind for right now.
1: Okay, you mentioned so many things, but I want to go back to earlier what we were talking about in terms of cultivating that emotional vulnerability and how important it is, because I love what you said that emotional vulnerability and being fully raw in who we are is one of the scariest things we can do mm-hmm. and the most beautiful thing we can do. So I'm tempted to frame my question like, okay, how do we make it less scary and more beautiful? But I'm wondering <laughs> if you... Would... <laughs>
0: that's, so, that's like such a guy question, I
1: think. <laughs> oh, I love it. But I'm like, I'm like she's probably going to tell me we have to be with the fear and, like, and, and hold it and, and recognize it. So... <laughs> yeah. I'll just switch my question <laughs> to how do we cultivate that safe space and encouraging space that encourages that raw emotional vulnerability that's so crucial for intimacy.
0: Well, and so to speak to <laughs> the initial question you wanted to ask, <laughs> uh, which I love. Um and you're right. I mean and I would say that you want to befriend the fear, but I would also say recognize that that your our willingness to be emotionally vulnerable with another human being when they're doing the same with us. The fear If we don't look at that and the discomfort of it as a bad thing, and if we actually try to reframe it as a valuable step, because I've had, I can remember this was a few years ago with somebody I was dating and he had never really, he had been in a long-term relationship and they were never really good at talking through their issues. And that any time they were talking about difficult topics and really vulnerable, emotionally laden, heavy topics, they would end up in a fight. And it would put a wedge between them. And then he noticed him and I, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm far from perfect, but I work hard to practice what I preach and everything that I'm saying here, um, in my, you know, personal and professional lives. And he noticed, he goes, okay, how is it that we just spent the past two hours talking about the most uncomfortable topics and like heated topics and you were crying some, and it was really heavy. And he goes, and I feel closer to you now two hours later than I did two hours ago. And I said, because that's what vulnerability is. That's what intimacy, like this depth of intimacy of genuinely really connecting deeply with other humans. That's what's required to get there. Is this, is being able to be vulnerable like that with each other, it brings us closer to other people. And so if you recognize that, okay, this feels really uncomfortable and this is scary and I'm gonna take this leap, uh, you know, it's a leap of faith. And that my partner's doing the same and it's going to be messy and it's going to be uncomfortable. But if we stick to it and we're both, you know, as responsible as we can be in it and we both stay being kind to each other and stay open, even when it's really hard, like we're actually going to be closer together at the end of this. We still may not totally see eye to eye or we may not have completely worked through this topic, but we did it as a team. And we did it in this really vulnerable way. So I think, you know, once people get a taste of that and know that that's possible, it's less scary to go into these and you can actually learn to befriend the fear and move towards the fear and like know that you actually have the courage and skills to do it. So wait, what was what was the second question and that you turned it into?
1: You answered it already so well. Uh, how do we go about cultivating uh, that safe space for emotional vulnerability to occur?
0: Yeah. If you're new to this and you're saying you're trying this with a partner, you know, I like to to take all these sort of kind of abstract concepts that I'm talking about and then boil them down in a really concrete way, which is why my book has a, you know, the last chapter is all about a coaching chapter. Like how do we put all of this into action? Um, Cause I want to be really practical with what you do all of this and how do you actually create sustainable change in your life. And so one of the most important things and practical things is, is just do this in small doses, like sit down with your partner and say, okay, we're going to try talking about this topic. First of all, so set a boundary of like 20 minutes or 25 minutes or whatever time you want and literally set a timer. And then like And when the timer goes off, you get to pause and step away from it. So like, no, it's going to be a short amount of time because I know um, particularly I tend to hear this from men. They're afraid to get into these conversations because they're afraid they're going to last two, three, five hours, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and they're not going to have gotten anywhere and they have an important meeting tomorrow and they're going to be exhausted and they're going to go to bed still mad at each other you know, look at this as a, as a skill that you're slowly building. And part of that is knowing, okay, yeah, I could totally do this for 20 minutes. And particularly if it's a short amount of time, and then you set the the groundwork of like, we're going to work really hard to be kind to each other, to have a interpretation of generous intent. So even if I don't say something perfectly, you know, my intentions are good. And that's a really important one. So, you know, setting the mind, set, uh, the mind frame that you both want to go in with, um, that you're going to try to be kinder, make sure neither of you are particularly exhausted or that you're hungry. (laughs) Um, Like these practical things that make it difficult for us to be kind and mindful and present with our partners when it's uncomfortable. And then like use a tool like on page 80 of my book I have the triangle of awareness that's a basic tool I use for mindfulness that helps people stop in a moment when they're being triggered to check in and be like okay what are my thoughts what's what's my interpretation of what you just said what does it mean to me uh, what emotions am I feeling and I even have a list of emotions you can pull from and where am I feeling this inside my body that stops any pattern that you've created over the years and you've created a pattern interrupt. And now you are just owning your reality in that moment and how things are showing up to you. I mean, it's a very vulnerable thing, but I've so often seen it with the couples I work with. Say it's like a heterosexual couple that I'm working with that's dating. And she's like really mad at her boyfriend and like, she's not being vulnerable and she's lashing out. And when I pause and I'll kind of like, walk her through the triangle and be like, hey, so what's what's going on with you? And she's still kind of angry and she's talking about her interpretations. But then we drop into the emotions and where she's feeling it in her. And then we circle back to her interpretation, you know, because it all feeds off of each other in our patterns. And then she starts crying and she's let her walls down and she drops into it. And her partner's sitting there like, oh shit, when I say that, that's how you feel? Like, I am so sorry. Like, oh my God, of course you get mad at me. <laughs> like, that sucks. <laughs> Like, I would never want you to feel that way. I had no idea that's what was going on. So, what you get to do is you really get to you get to drop into where you're missing each other and where you're being hurt and where you're not feeling seen or understood or listened to, or where you're feeling belittled or shamed. And generally in loving relationships, we don't want to do that to each other. We just don't know that's what's going on. And we have some pattern in place to try to get out of that moment. And so Anyway, there's uh, lots of tools to use to be able to create it, but just starting with like little amounts of doing this once a week or a few times a week and knowing that you don't have to, you know, quote unquote, fix your topic or whatever you're talking about by the end, but that it's an ongoing dialogue um, and that you're learning skills and learning about yourself and your partner in the process.
1: So real quick, what's the triangle of awareness?
0: Yes. So (laughs) I gave the example really early on in this podcast about a woman in a relationship and her partner brings up, hey, I noticed we haven't had sex in a while. And then she feels triggered in that moment. Like that would be a fantastic time to use the triangle because she would then in that moment, she could pause and be like, oh, I noticed that you asked that question and I literally felt flushed and warm all over and Mm. my heart started pounding you know, looking into her bodily sensations. That's one part of the triangle. And she goes, and then my thought was, oh shit, are we going to have to talk about this? And that's the top part of the triangle. That's like your thoughts, your interpretations. And then the other corner of the triangle is your emotions. And then to realize, oh gosh, I felt worried that we were going to have to talk about this. I felt guilty because I know you're right. And then I noticed that I kind of had a dropping feeling in my stomach and I got nervous that like you're unhappy with me. And then because all of that felt uncomfortable, then I noticed I had the thought like, well, geez, I've been working really hard for the past three months. And like, I'm the one that's earning more money in our household or something. And like, how can you, you know, begrudge me that? And I haven't been able to, you know, have sex because I've been so stressed. And once I had that thought, then I noticed I felt anger. And then I felt a tightness in my chest. And so what I just described, like we can absolutely get to the point that we can articulate all of that. But before we're at that point, for most people, that's just a pattern that gets triggered in like half a second. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You go through all of those things and then whatever your pattern is to lash out at your partner or to shut down or, you know, numb yourself or distract or whatever so what mindfulness can do and what the triangle of awareness helps us do, it, it's like there's a, a raging river in front of us. And so you could be walking along the shore and enjoy, you know, on this beautiful hike and um, totally in the moment. And then you have this like thought or there's memory about this email you got this morning. And then all of a sudden it's like you get thrown in the river and you are washed away by your thoughts, by your emotions and by your bodily sensations. So those three parts of the, the triangle of awareness. And so by deconstructing those three different areas, it helps you not get swept away by the river, but stay present in the moment. You're still standing on the shore. Your feet are in the river. You could feel all the chaos of your thoughts, your emotions, your bodily sensations. You're not getting swept away by them, by whatever pattern is taking you out of this moment. And you get to stay present. You feel the discomfort. You feel the chaos. You're in it all. But now you actually get to study it, stay present with it and make a different choice. And so the, the triangle of awareness is just a, a basic tool um, that I teach people and that I, I use as a tool in my book um, to help people, to, to give them a visual anchor, something that's really helpful for couples to sit down and use together and just slowly start to figure out what is happening in this moment that I do not want to have this conversation with you, or I am overwhelmed with shame and I won't even talk to you, or I just feel such hatred and disgust of my own body. You know, whatever, and to build, and then actually stay present with that, and pull apart the different pieces of it, and be like, "Oh, right, I totally remember when I was eight years old, and my grandmother made this comment to me about my body, and what that meant to me, and now, you know, and that's my interpretation every time somebody says something like that." So it, it gets tied to then, you know, all our our cultural teachings and the stories that we've learned from society and have been taught and then how they become our own stories and our own narratives around our body and our worthiness and our um, ourselves as sexual beings. And so then once we can pause, reflect on it, um, then we could slowly start making new choices. And I, I genuinely think that is the epitome of empowerment when we can make choices that we didn't even know we had before.
1: It's such a, such a really nice tool, this triangle of awareness that you're speaking of. And I love what you said about just not getting swept away by the river and being able to sit with the moment. And in your book, you lament the lack of comprehensive pleasure-based sex education. And you also lament the lack of relationship education. And I imagine, you know, the triangle of awareness might be something oh gosh, you would yeah. learn in relationship school. What are some other things you think might be taught in relationship school?
0: oh my gosh, can we start a relationship school? <laughs> oh, it'd be amazing. Yeah, if like there was a year long class in high school, maybe like ninth grade or so, 10th grade or something, you know, and really good comprehensive sex education and mindfulness training and compassion training. I, it's interesting because it's, it's sad. It's disheartening the number of adults, you know, that I've worked with over the years or even friends of mine who are like, well, how do you know what your needs are in a relationship? How do you know what you want? Because I talk to people, I was like, oh, you know, ask for your needs, negotiate, whatever. But then they'll look at me and be like, but I don't know what my needs are. And I, so uh, to me, that would be one of the foundational things, which is what mindfulness skills give us access to is how do you get in touch with what's going on inside of you? So you know what your needs are and what your desires are and what your wants are. And then how do you know that you're worthy to have your needs met and deserving of it, but also having compassion for another human being in front of you and that they have their own needs and wants and desires. And then how do you negotiate through that? How do you talk through that? You know, How do you know the difference between um, doing something with someone else because you're curious to try something new or you want to explore it with them versus feeling coerced? or feeling obligated? You know, what are those types of distinctions? And then just the skills, because so often people don't know how to bring up sexual topics with their partner, even when they've been together for a long time, because we're not taught the right words how to do it. We don't know the nuances to talk about our experiences. We don't know, you know, how to do it kindly or compassionately. We don't know how to be strategic with it. And how to be productive and responsible with it. So all of those things. But it all starts with we have to know ourselves. And then we have to know how to honor and respect other human beings in front of us who are just as worthy of um, having their needs and desires met. I mean, presuming they're consensual. And those basic levels of self-reflection and self-knowledge and then self-kindness and then meeting others in that place, I think, would be foundational in my year-long high school relationship (laughs) class.
1: (laughs) So self-reflection, self-knowledge and self-kindness, all tools we want to bring in. And this kind of ties into the question I wanted to ask earlier, because you talked about, gaining an awareness of the things that we want and then being willing to ask for it and break out of the shame around asking for it. And how do we do that in a way that doesn't bring up judgment or defensiveness on the part of our partner? So how does a person ask their partner to do something different? And especially like, you know, in the bedroom, a lot of shame can come up. So how do we ask a partner to do something differently, sexually, without hurting their feelings or making them feel overwhelmed?
0: Yeah, and it's such a good question because and it's interesting because normally my response to things is be be honest, be straightforward and with this specific topic though i, I think tact and strategy <laughs> are more important in that i never want people to be you know dishonest with their partners but knowing that these topics are so laden in in discomfort and in insecurity for people and you could so So often, I mean, we, most, many of us have experience of when we were younger, of when a lover or a partner unwittingly said something that just hurt us so bad that we still carry with us. And they probably didn't even know it, you know, they didn't mean it, or, you know, they made a comment about how our genitals look or something. And, and, you know, it was just in passing, but we then internalize that. So we do want to be tactful and kind with our language, but we still want to be, and, and, but we want to be, we want to be practical. And we want to be strategic and we want to be productive. So, you know, I have two thoughts. One is, you know, we kind of have this cliche approach. If you're ever going to sort of offer a new suggestion or or say something negative, you do like the positive sandwich, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so, but there is, but I mean, I do think genuinely making sure your partner knows all the things that you really do appreciate about your sex life with them or that you appreciate about their body or you appreciate about their sensuality. Um, so making sure that you are coming from a mindset of gratitude and appreciation towards your partner and cultivating that and genuinely like carrying that energy forward and speaking from that place, I think is really valuable. I also think it's valuable because um, I always tell people, use blame me for it. Use me as your excuse. <laughs> Say, hey, I was reading this book. I was listening to this podcast. I stumbled upon this website. I read this article. and I was, you know, reading about this, this, concept of like power play in the bedroom and I you know I've kind of scary but I never really thought about it before but I realized I kind of got excited reading about it so like what do you think about this so you know that's my thought just say that you know you know that you heard it somewhere you read it somewhere so that sounds very different from like you were searching on Google my sex life sucks how do I make it better (laughs) you know versus that you were just sort of out and about in the world and you're just always open to learning and you're excited And, you know, and that kind of like, yeah, our sex life is great. And and I just would always love to be trying new things with you because like that would be fun. You know, again, it's starting from that you're starting from like a foundation of gratitude or strength already. And you're building on top of that. And then, you know, just say, you know, say our Dr. Jen was talking about this thing and like, I had never heard about this thing. And like, have you heard about this? And what do you think of that? And like, what do you think about us trying that? And so it just, it's like this, it's a very, you're being vulnerable. You know, you're like, I don't really know about this, but this sounds interesting. Can we chat about it for a little bit? And then otherwise, you know, I think if you're actually in the bedroom and say your partner's doing something to you or to, let's say touching you in a certain way and you want them to touch differently that can be very difficult for people to voice to have the comfort to voice it to know how to voice it right um and so sometimes just gently you know guiding their hand or moving their hand and and acknowledging you're like, yeah, I know, you know, my body's always sort of changing <laughs> what feels good. Um, and like last year, I loved that. But this year, yeah, I love something different because <laughs> we are. Our bodies are always growing and changing and our sexuality is always growing and changing. Um, and I don't think many people have that sort of mindset and know that that's just totally normal of what it is to be in the lifespan of a human um, who's a sexual human. And so to have that open mindedness about uh, opening and growing. So, yeah. So, you know, my thought is just bring it up in a really nonchalant, kind of curious way about specifically bringing up topics. So yeah.
1: I was thinking what a delicious sandwich that would be. Okay, so you have two pieces of bread. One's gratitude, one's appreciation. And then like the meat in the middle is like, so I was reading something from Dr. Jen today. I know, right? And that's the
0: thing. If you bring the right energy, the other person would be ridiculous. You know, it'd be ridiculous for them to shoot you down. So, um, but that does, I mean, if the other person really, really has an insecure response, and you feel it like, and you really were like, really approached it in a mindful way, then I, you know, that other person's got some stuff to work on and really may not be a great fit for you. And that is a problem that I run into with couples sometimes. One is really into personal growth and wanting to try and learn and owning their shit. And the other person is, uh, doesn't want to do that. Um, It's hard, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, or they're resentful of being like, well, I shouldn't have to change. I mean, they're scared, right? That comes from fear for sure. That's a total fear response. But then they they use the languaging, well, I shouldn't have to change. You should love me as I am. Instead of recognizing, like as humans in relationships, nothing is ever stagnant. Everything is always changing. And that's not a negative thing. Now, if somebody's trying to like really manipulate you or, or change you or control you, that's I'm not talking about abusive relationships here, but I am talking about ongoing, otherwise you're in a respectful positive, loving relationship and, you know, one person wants to continually evolve and grow and the other person takes offense to that, that's, you know, that's something to look at, that that person may not be the right fit for you.
1: So... Uh, I could. You're right. You have so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the beginning of the interview, and you're like, yeah. I could talk all day. Yep. And then I was like, You're right. I I could just listen to you all day, yeah. and you have oh, so much you. to say. But unfortunately, we are running a little bit low on time, so I wanted to finish by asking you a question. I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Oh,
0: that it's two things. That it's a beautiful, scary thing. And that it's a choice in that, especially in long-term relationships, that it's an, it's like an action and a choice and you want to be paying attention to that. So I'll keep it succinct.
1: (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. It's a beautiful and scary thing and a choice. Pay Mm -hmm. attention. Ah, thank you so much, Dr. Jen. <laughs> for those of our listeners who want to learn more about you and perhaps work with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Yeah, my website, D R J E N N S D E N dot com, is my main hub for everything. So I've got tons of free YouTube videos and TEDx talks and, uh, and articles and blogs and interviews. And I have my podcast, Sex Talk with Clint in the Doc. Um, and so Dr. Jen's ten. basically, if you just go to Google and type in any version of Dr. Jen's ten, it <laughs> should bring you to it and my website. And then, like I said, that's my hub. You can find all my social media stuff there. So I definitely encourage folks to follow me on there and comment and uh, send me little notes. And if you like my stuff to please share it, because that helps me spread the word around all of this. And also on my website, they can check out my book. They can find a link to it um, there on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's in some local bookstores as well. So yeah, yeah, that's where they could find me best.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing with us all your insight and wisdom. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you continue to encourage a safe space for raw and emotional vulnerability to happen in your relationship. And if you feel like you have internalized conflicting messages about sex and sexuality and love and relationships, you're not alone. There's madness everywhere in our <laughs> culture, and we can break out of it with mindfulness, with being present with the discomfort in order to break out of the conditioning. Love is beautiful and scary and a choice. Thank you again for listening. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Jen.
0: Oh, thank you. Your questions were fantastic. I really enjoyed this past hour. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.